This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. Some more exciting answers to the baffling and intriguing questions of science. Up and Adam, science on FBI. A huge thank you to Anthony from Croydon who signed up online as a supporter. Thank you so much. We are in the midst of Up and Adam with Dr. Alice Williamson who jumps on every Tuesday morning to give you some golden science. But this one is particularly special, Alice, because we're talking the Nobel Prize for chemistry. This is your field of expertise. Yeah, the finest of sciences. <laughs> um, I'm a little bit biased, of course, but last week we talked about the Nobel Prizes in medicine and physiology and physics, and you can listen back to that on the podcast. But for today, it's the time for chemistry. And this year's Nobel Prize is, is really an, an exciting one because it enables us to understand more about the chemistry of life. The team of scientists who won this Nobel Prize are a Swiss scientist, Jacques Jacques Dubochet, a Scottish uh, uh, scientist, Richard Henderson, and a German-born scientist who works in America, Joachim Frank. And this team of scientists worked on a way, a new type of microscopy, which enables us to look at biomolecules, so the molecules that are inside our bodies, in really high resolution. And by being able to look at these molecules, we can then begin to understand much more about the complexities of their function and the way that they interact with other biomolecules and the way that they interact with medicines. Wow. And what was the technique they used and how does it work? So the the technique is called cryo-electron microscopy. And this is a technique that's uh, that's come out of a lot of, uh, you know, uh, all science is built on on a, a firm tradition of historical discoveries. And previously, ways of looking at molecules, not particularly biomolecules, but uh, organic chemistry molecules or fixed molecules that, that aren't part of living organisms, have involved either X-ray crystallography, where you get a fixed crystal of a molecule and you fire electron, uh, you fire X-ray beams at this. And uh, by looking at the way that the X-rays are deflected at different angles, you can build up a picture of that molecule. That doesn't work too well for living organisms because they're moving around and you need to have a a fixed piece of this molecule that is still in order to look at this molecule by x-ray crystallography. And then along came uh, a technique which fired electron beams at molecules. Now the problem with firing electron beams at molecules is that it it can destroy those molecules. So what this type of uh, cryo-electron microscopy did is it, it... these scientists modified this electron beam so it's a much weaker beam and it could fire at different angles at, at these biomolecules. And another part of this uh, science that was you know, intrinsic in being able to do this, in able to look at these molecules of life, was the development of a, a neat way of freezing these molecules in time by uh, adding water to the solution and rather than forming um, sort of water in its frozen sense that we know it as ice crystals they've managed to almost freeze a kind of liquid glass which sort of locks that molecule in place so that you can fire these electron beams at it um, but doesn't produce the crystals that we would disrupt the technique because if you have crystals of water 
they're going to disrupt the electron beam and give you uh, false signals about the structure of those molecules. So there's a lot of work that's gone into this development um, from these three scientists and many others. And it's a really exciting and important method for all types of scientists, not just chemists, but it enables us to have these snapshots of what these biomolecules are doing and build up a, a picture of how they work. Yeah, like a moment in time. How did these three scientists come together? Well, they all had uh, different technical expertise. So I think in, in the 70s and 80s, Frank was working on taking 2D images. So uh, they're called micrographs. They're pictures that are taken with a microscope and stitching these together to build a, free, a 3D image. Um, Dubochet was the gentleman who pioneered this idea of flash freezing into this uh, this glass, a method of something called vitrification. And Frank was our mathematical whiz. So he's the one who developed the algorithms that enabled this method to be applied to, to such a wide range of molecules. And between the three of them, they really developed a technique that started off as a very low resolution technique so you could kind of see blobs of these molecules and now the resolution is so so much better that we can begin to see very intricate parts of these molecules structure. We mentioned last week how one of the winners it was a shoe-in. It was always going to happen. Was there an element of surprise or expectation with this one? There was, so there was a lot of discussion about what might have been the Chemistry Nobel Prize. And there's always a little bit of dispute about Chemistry Nobel Prizes because they seem to sit somewhere in between physics and biology. So this is a physical method for looking at, at the, method, uh, the molecules of biology. But of course, chemistry is right there in the middle. So there were other contenders who, who people thought might have won it this year but I think uh, this has widely been appreciated because this is is a kind of a form of basic science and and it underpins the importance of looking at methods and basic science that originally you know at the beginning might not seem so exciting but by working at a method like this that allows us to see these molecules in action what we can learn about how these molecules work will really advance and is already advancing our understanding of how biological systems work and how we can better treat different illnesses. So it's a really exciting prize, I think. Definitely. And as someone in the chemistry field, what did you reckon when they took it home? Yeah, I was I was really happy about this one. I mean, some of the, the work that's come out, you know, of, of using this technique, and it's something that's used in universities around the world, and it's almost becoming, um, you know, it's becoming a technique that people rely on to understand the structure of molecules. But we've learned things about the, the shape of the surface of the Zika virus, which is really important for developing a vaccine against Zika. If you understand the structure of this virus that you're trying to kill with a, a vaccine or a medicine, um, you need to understand how your medicine is going to interact with that surface. We understand the structure of some proteins that called, cause antibiotic resistance because of this tech, you know, this technology. So, I mean, that's important. We know how important uh, it is that we combat antibiotic resistance and to do that we need to know more about the structures of the molecules that are integral to these processes. So I think it's a, a great uh, Nobel Prize. Definitely. We're talking the Nobel Prize winners for chemistry. You can check out more about this story at fbiradio.com slash programs if you click on Up For It. They took home the gold for that and we are asking people to go for gold for our supporter drive. Alice, you're actually going to 
dive into gold and that element after this. Give us a bit of a, a science lesson yeah, right here on so. air. I think it's time we got some rigour you know, yeah. to this, to this uh, supported drive. We need some science here. We need to understand the science of gold and it's coming up. Absolutely. And we've got a very fitting track to take us there. The Greats taking you back to 2005. This is Science is Golden. It sure is. From the greats, science is golden. Now, Alice, this week we've been asking people to go for gold. Think Sydney Olympics 2000, a.k.a. the best Olympics ever, fitness, strength. But this morning you're going to kind of take us on a science lesson of gold. It is an element, AU. Yeah, you're right. That's that's the atomic symbol. Tick. Tick, it's got an atomic number of 79, an atomic mass of 197, but that's enough of the vital statistics for gold. Maybe we should start with uh, an Olympic story. Um, you might have noticed that that people often bite their medals when they win an Olympic medal. Yes. And this is thought to, to date back to the time where coins and medals were often made of gold. And gold's actually a pretty soft and malleable metal. So if the, the, the medal was truly made of gold, it would be marked by the teeth. So people used to do that to check whether a coin was really pure gold or whether a medal was pure gold. And today, sadly, the Olympic medals, the gold medal, is not pure gold. Um, they used to cost, I think, about $24,000 to, <gasps> to make a gold medal. That's the that's the, the uh, quote I got when I looked this up. Um, so at the moment, they're at, and for quite a while, they've only they're only made up of about one point three four percent gold. So that's about six grams, and the bulk of them is silver, and a little bit of that is copper. So there are only apparently three Olympics where pure gold medals were given out, and they were the nineteen oh four, nineteen oh eight, and nineteen twelve Olympics. So, oh my gosh! So when people when these you know gold medalists put their the medal in between their teeth. Sadly, we can tell them already that they do not have a pure gold medal. Yeah, goodness. So tell us a bit more about, I guess, the functions of gold and when, where it all came yeah, about. Yeah, well, gold has been an important metal um, for for very, since very early civilizations. It's one of the very first metals that was used by people. And part of the reason for this is that it's, it's rare in the fact that gold is one of few metals that's found in its natural state in its native state its metallic state just on the ground because it's not a very reactive metal it's much less reactive than most of the metals um it doesn't react with oxygen so it, it's not formed in these kind of rocks you know these ores where most metals are found so you can find it you know on on the ground and in fact in australia we know after the 1850s there was a huge gold rush in australia because people could find this native gold that was just strewn around Victoria, sometimes huge nuggets of gold that could be bought and sold for quite a lot of money. Um, so it's you know it's been played a very rich part in history because of this accessibility and because of its its properties. So you don't have to mine it. It's very easy to to beat into sheets. So we we you know we can see this is the the gold covering on some of the the pharaohs uh, tombs and and from Egypt. Um, it's also uh, a very important and uh, it's a really uh, useful metal in terms of the fact that it is very ductile it can be stretched into very thin strings so it's good as wires and uh, for electrical connections you know obviously in the the more recent times so it's a very useful metal now um, lots of the history of gold as well is, is to do with alchemists 
So the alchemists are sometimes, you know, stated as being the first chemists, but these are were a group of of, of people who thought that you would it would be possible to find um, the philosopher's stone, which would help them to transform base metals, so cheaper metals like lead, into gold. And unfortunately, through although they had you know many experiments, they were not successful in transforming cheaper metals into gold. But in the 1920s, um, some Japanese scientists did succeed in transforming uh, mercury into gold by firing neutrons at gold. Wow. You know, blasting out a neutron from the atom and transforming this metal into another metal. This was repeated again in the 1940s by some American scientists who confirmed this. But they found that all of the types of gold that they made were actually radioactive. So that's one way of getting gold from another metal. But I think the exp- the experiment's so expensive that it's probably not the most cost-effective method. Yeah. Um. But gold has had um a, a resurgence actually in its use in science. Um. In, in recent years because of our increased understanding of nanoscience and nanotechnology, which is something we talk about quite frequently on, on Up and Atom because it's such an important area of science at the moment. But some of the first discoveries of gold nanoparticles were done by accident, as with many, many discoveries. And I actually saw a very early sample of these gold nanoparticles in solution when I was in London a few weeks ago at the Royal Institution. So there was this scientist who's pretty famous, uh, Michael Faraday, who was doing some experiments and trying to look at the properties of light and matter. And some of his experiments involved hammering gold into very thin sheets to look at down a microscope. So also ties in with our our previous uh, subject. But he couldn't get these these layers to be thin enough for his experiment. So he started washing away layers of gold. What he noticed is, in you know, in this experiment to get these thin sheets of gold, was the washings had turned from being, you know, colourless into this kind of reddish, reddish solution. And this was because there were gold nanoparticles suspended in the solution. And he showed that if you shone a light through this solution, you could see the beam of light. If you shine a, a, a beam of light or a laser through water or something, you just see the, the light coming out on the other side. But if there's particles in there, you can see the beam. And this sample of this colloidal gold still exists in the Royal Institution. So you can go and have a look at it and, and see this sample. And one of the things that is a mystery to scientists, this this uh, solution was made about 150 years ago, and it still has this optical property. But most solutions of gold nanoparticles that we've, we've made today only last for a few months or so. So scientists are desperate to crack open this bottle and understand more about the properties of the solution. But the museum doesn't want them to because it's, you know, preserved you know, for people to to look at for, oh. you know, for centuries to come. So there's a bit of tension there. Yeah, what a dilemma. Um, yeah, so there's, you know, there's a rich, rich history of gold in science and, and in terms of civilization, its uses. So it's a really important metal and we're learning more about the properties of gold nanoparticles and their importance for catalysis and photovoltaics and optics and all sorts of things. So um, gold is becoming, you know... A, becoming even more interesting i would say um because of our understanding of nanoscience yeah definitely you can listen back to this gold science lesson from alice williamson if you head to fbiradio.com slash podcast alice you've given us the science but why do you reckon people should go for gold for fbi radio oh you've got to support this station i mean the the things that fbi does for sydney uh, lots of it goes you know quite almost unnoticed but this you know this group of people who bring music from australia from sydney and you know are such big supporters of Sydney culture 
and you know get behind local artists and acts it's essential and it's something that everybody should support so go for gold alice cheers thank you so much A double three double two nine four five is the number to call or you can head online at fbiradio.com slash support whole lot of prizes in it for you including our classic track or golden oldie which we're going to get to soon alice thank you so much thank you we'll catch you next week